Well, it's January 2017, and it's the first installment of Raw for the new year. And before we get going here and get things kicked off, I, I want to do the shout out like we're going to do and we started doing on the last episode to anyone who donates $50 or more. You know, donations are a big part of what we do. It's built on a, a model of a mix of advertising and donations. And I got to tell you, we appreciate every single bit we get from everyone. It really helps get things done here. We're still working towards replacing our main computer, which is now seven years old, actually. <laughs> so it's it's getting long in tooth, and uh, it uh, it does create some problems, but that's something we're working towards, and, and that's what we're using uh, some of the donations for. It makes a big difference to Elizabeth and I here at, uh, at Adventure Rider Radio, and of course it makes it possible for us to do the show. So thank you, everyone. I'm going to give you a, a short little list here of people who went past that $50 mark, and it, it's sort of like a, you know, just a big thing for us, uh, I guess what it is. So uh, I'm going to start with, and I hope I get the pronunciation right, we've got Ted Danforth, Greg Marles, Thomas Jardier, Victor Pereverzev, Pereverzev, that's it, Victor Pereverzev. Craig Connor, Hume Fairholm. All uh, six of these people have uh, have done a huge donation for this month, so we really appreciate it. And again, like I said, we appreciate all the donations we get. Everything is helpful, no matter how big or how small. Everybody ready to go? Go for it. From the Canoe West Media Studio on the shores of Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada, it's January 2017, and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Roundtable discussions about motorcycle, travel, and anything else that crosses our minds. Completely unscripted, raw, and personal. I'm Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable, afforded through the magic of the internet, we have our five regular Overland co-hosts and one guest. Now, I'm going to begin with the guest because he's a guest, and we got to treat him that way. We have Carl Parker. Carl is the publisher of ADV Moto Magazine. Carl, great to have you on the show. How's it going? And hello to everyone else as well. Hey, Carl. Good to see you. So, and now going to our, our regular co-host, Shirley, Brian, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, all. So what's it like in Australia this morning? Oh, it's going to be a glorious day. And when we finish talking to you, we'll go for a swim in our pool and then sit in the sun for a fair swag of the day. No, we won't. Oh, won't we? No, I've got heaps of writing to do. Oh. <laughs> well, maybe I'll do that. I'll go and enjoy be, our beautiful summer's day and my husband can work. <laughs> I've, I've been uh, given a 800 GS adventure from BMW to test ride, so I've... Uh, been test riding that for a little while, just clocked up a lazy 2,000 kilometres on it, um, taking in all sorts of country, so I've got to do a report on it now, so yeah, um, an interesting bike. Well, wh- why would they give that to you? <laughs> Good question. I'm just, I'm just a pretty face, that's why. Like, have they not listened <laughs> no. to, the, to, I mean, you think you'd listen to some of the stuff you've done, I mean, the riding up into the mountain and into the snow, I mean, you're the last person I would give a bike to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I went up into the high country and there is, uh, we had some rain up there and uh, the big gum trees um, don't like too much rain up there, so there's uh, a couple that fall, fell across the road and uh, that made life a little interesting coming around a blind corner and having a, a, a 60 foot tree across the road in front of you, but no, uh, it was all good, all good, nice bike. 
Well, back in my part of the world, or closer to my part of the world, Grant Johnson is in British Columbia. Grant, uh, good morning, or good afternoon. No, sorry, good afternoon. It's, it's afternoon already. Yes, it is. Uh, thanks, and welcome to everybody. Welcome to Carl Quarker to join us. Uh, it's great to have you with us. It's going to be fun. And then jumping right across the pond to the UK, Sam Manicom. Sam, hello. Is it, It's evening for you, isn't it? Um, yeah, it certainly is. It's um, just gone nine o'clock in the UK, and um, I've no idea what it's out like like outside at the moment because it's dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but listen, I mean, the, the, it is not raining. But I tell you what, the last few weeks I've been over in Germany, and it's been heavy frosts and no snow and mostly sunny days and absolutely perfect for getting around. It's just, just been awesome spending Christmas over there, the Christmas markets and family and friends and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so it's been really, really nice. But the amazing thing was when we came back, we went from minus six degrees Celsius um, in Germany um, to plus 10 here. Now, reaching way, way into the night... We have Graham Field, who has stayed up half the night just to talk to us. Graham, are you still there? The voice of darkness, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, good to have everyone on and everyone awake. It's nice, the, the Graham, that you're awake. I mean, it's it's so much easier than having to prod you to wake up and come onto the show and talk oh, sleepily. Totally paced myself tonight. We've got this little uh, this little group in the village, who, and we watch uh, the Dakar. And uh, we all go around uh, taking turns going to each other's house. And uh, tonight was my turn to cook shepherd's pie. And then we watched the Dakar at mine. So brilliantly paced, wide awake, rare to go and stone cold sober. <laughs> you know, you realize some listeners are going to think that you have a problem with that because every time they hear you on the show, they hear that you're drinking. I know, apart from that time I was in hospital, yeah. <laughs> then I was on morphine. <laughs> and why would you bother watching the Dakar now? It's all over. Toby Price is out. Was <laughs> uh, <that's> important? <laughs> so, go on then, Graham. What's the, what's the update from the Dakar? Oh, well, well oh, I don't know how much to tell you, uh, but... There's a hell of a lot. I mean, if you didn't like racing, it, Eurosport is a channel for you because you get about three minutes of racing and then a whole bunch of scenery and drones flying over cities and stuff. It's really good to inspire you to go travel through South America. But if you want to watch live racing, you really don't get that much in between. But it, it's fun and the shepherd's pie was good. <laughs> we get half an hour highlights every night. And the ones we got last night, it was a lay day, which would be why there was so much travel stuff in it. And the rain oh, in Bolivia has been unbelievable. The mud uh, that they've been dealing with over there, great, unbelievable. But I tell you what, you're right. I've got itchy feet. I've got the wanderlust again just watching some of those sites. It is stunning scenery up there in Bolivia and what have you. And uh, I, I was there about 17 years ago, but, yeah, I want to go back, want to see more. But the other thing, the one thing that's come across is I would rate zero on their level. I can't ride a bike. Compared to them, I can't ride a bike. I mean, I can't <laughs> even ride a bike. And what they're doing is just outrageous. And for all my years and experience, I couldn't even I couldn't even get off that podium at the start without dropping it. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the Toby was doing that though. Um, the motorbikes are clocking at 180 k's an hour on the dirt. Um, on the dirt, yeah. And pulling wheelies. 
yeah. Well, I was just going to say, Honda just uh, introduced this thing that we're, we're going to be talking about, this new technology they've been working on. It's a, a self-balancing motorcycle, which is not really particularly new, as, as most of us know, I'm sure, that um, there's been other ones out there that, that uh, I don't know if any's made it to the mainstream, but concept vehicles, usually they're held, they've got gyroscopes on them that are run by electric motors. And that's how they balance it. But this one balances by turning the handlebars back and forth. Pretty amazing stuff. I mean, you've got a bike that's, that's basically, they, they say it's, it's going back and forth uh, a thousand times a, a second or thousands of times a second or something. Carl, have you had a look at this? Yeah, you know, I mean, this is all some, some kind of fantastic uh, technology as an, as an application. My, always, or my concern about these things is always, you know, uh, whenever you have technology that is designed to take the place of skill, um, you know, which we see even with things like ABS and all these other kinds of things like that. It's just like, well, what happened to actually giving people some responsibility to, you know, <laughs> learning how to properly handle uh, all kinds of vehicles too, cars, yeah. you know, like, like the whole thing. Spot on, Kyle, spot on. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad yeah. you said that because that really that's what we're talking about is, is this technology that comes out. And we can throw ABS in there because it, it's another thing that's a safety technology taking over in that perspective the point of, or the uh, responsibility of the rider to worry about overbraking. You know, they can just haul on the brakes as much as they want. And in most conditions, the ABS is going to be great. Uh, there's a stability control system out that, that Bosch has for actually making the bike stable. And I, I forget who it was now, but uh, somebody who tried it said that it's, it's almost impossible to make the thing crash. It's, it's so incredibly stable. All these things help us for safety-wise, but and they're definitely going to change motorcycling. I mean, you, once the once the technology comes out, it's like you can't put it away. You know, it's going to find its way into mainstream things. But is it really a bad thing? Because a lot of technology that we have on our bikes now um, are things that have been developed over the years that have made things safer for us, and, and especially automobiles. So, I mean, is it really a bad thing or is it a good thing? It's, it's a sort of a toss-up, isn't it? Well, I mean, I agree with what Carl's just said. I think it is a move to take away from the buzz that I suspect most motorcyclists get from being in control, the snap judgments, and of course, the ever-present risks that something can go wrong because of something that we do that ends up being a mistake. But I'm asking myself if that's a bit nanny statish. But, you know, I'm not surprised that this is the next stage in motorcycling. And I wouldn't be surprised that, bizarre as it seems in so many ways, in 10 years, many motorcycles are going to be made this way. And we mentioned ABS just now, but there's ride-by-wire and things like that. And they only came in a few years ago. Look how prevalent they are now. And another bizarre thought is that perhaps in 50 years' time, all people who are going to be riding solo or two-up um, riding machines are going to be riding things like we see in science fiction movies now, you know, sort of solo shuttles. And I understand that the motorcycle industry has to work hard to get more people on motorcycles. You know, traffic jams, fuel consumption needs to be dra dramatically reduced and so on. And, you know, a bike that you can't fall off um, particularly at slow speeds, well, yeah, okay, elderly people who've ridden bikes all of their lives and no longer have the strength to do it, I think that's fantastic. And disabled riders, that's pretty phenomenal. But what about um, all of the, the joy that comes from the step-by-step -step learning and the mistakes that we make along the way and the things that we learn to be common sense because of the whole learning curve. If you suddenly put somebody on a motorcycle where it's basically thinking for them and doing everything for them, ah, well, you know, maybe I'm just being blinkered in old school. 
Um, and, you know, this type of motorcycling is going to open up all sorts of possibilities that weren't there before and developments too. I mean, just look at what happened, the difference between carburetors and fuel injection. But, I mean, with ABS, I want, I want a bike where I can turn it off when I want to. And traction control. You know, I've, I've got plenty of motorcycling friends who, who really make their bikes work hard. And they say that um, that's a, an absolute hoot and they get an even bigger adrenaline buzz because of the possibilities it gives them. But I still think we should all be starting off with the gentle old school learning curve. Yeah, I agree. Do you remember, has anyone ever, um, when ABS first came out, um, do you remember testing it? Or did you ever test it? It was terrifying. <laughs> first time I, I tested it. I was down at Phillip Island racetrack, and um, it's, it's surrounded by grass. I had shell on the back, and I decided, okay, I'm going to test out this ABS. So I got to about 60 kilometres an hour on the grass and yanked on the front brake. It works. Yep. <laughs> Luckily, it works. <laughs> but you know, I'm just wondering how this um, leaning will go. You know, it's the joy. The motorbikes are about fun, and um, they're they're not really. Oh, I suppose they are a, a conveyance of transport in the in the not so developed world, but. For the developed world, really, it's it's about enjoyment, isn't it? And is it going to take out the enjoyment? I'm not so sure. I don't know. I want to still want to be able to get the the knee down if I need to or I want to. Um, so as long as the bike doesn't interfere with that, I'm happy. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of points, which I think is one is how would a bike like this open uh, up uh, the market to people that otherwise wouldn't be doing it? Uh, you know, what are the pros and cons of that? Um, you know, and then, uh, and then the other thing too is, is where, where is this, this kind of technology actually best suited? So for example, like, let's say that, uh, there was a congested city somewhere in the world. Uh, and, um, and, uh, and actually with small streets, single track vehicles are really the best way to get people through, right? Where when you have people sitting side by side, suddenly your street is cut into half or even a quarter, you know, like in some cases. So, I mean, if we were to take this in, into kind of science fiction, I could almost see this kind of technology kind of being semi-enclosed, right? And it being just kind of kind of like a self-driving car, but even actually smaller and really designed for one to two person style commuting or something like that. Think of the BMW that. C1. C1 with the roof on it, and you give it the self-balancing, and you've got something that just about anybody could just hop into and go. Throw in a little bit of self-driving, and you've got a taxi that takes up no space. Yeah, yeah and you've right. also got access to anyone as a rider. I mean, most people will jump into a vehicle and drive it, learn to drive, and not be fearful of it. But the motorcycle, the balancing thing, I think, is a huge part of the fear of motorcycling. I mean, obviously, the crash part, too. But I think the balancing thing is really difficult for people to manage. But if you get over that, where that's completely a non-issue, I can see in the future, as, as fuel prices increase, et cetera, I, could, I can imagine a future with bikes everywhere, which would make it better for even hardcore motorcyclists like us. There's always been a range. I mean, you think about your lowly 50cc scooter, which you'll see millions of in big cities in Italy and France and places like that and Jakarta and all the rest of it, all the way up to the high-end super hyperbike. There's always going to be a range of bikes that some people will want one end, some people will want the other end. So, And you can always disconnect technology if you want to. Sam? Now, the question I was going to ask was, is there anybody um, out of the group here who – um, didn't learn to ride a bicycle first. Uh, we all did. I think I did. I think everybody that, started on a bicycle. 
that's where a lot of the learning of balance comes from before we even get on a motorcycle, isn't it? Sure. Well, no, no, here's a question. I think the biggest problem is balance or weight. <sighs> they kind of go together, um, don't they? Yeah, but you're talking about picking heavy. the bike up when it falls? No, I'm just talking about like a psychological effect of someone standing over a 500 plus pound machine, you know, versus them standing over a 250 pound. You know, that, that just feels more manageable. Mm. Uh, Carl's just bringing up a really good point here and one of the things that I've been very interested watching over the last couple of months is how many manufacturers um, BMW, CCM, Enfield, CSC, Kawasaki, Suzuki and so on uh, are developing um, smaller CC um, bikes with long legs so in other words they're much lighter but they've got the the capability to, to tour reasonable distances on um, and these bikes are a hell of a lot lighter. So shouldn't the market be concentrating more and more on fuel-efficient, lighter, easier-to-manage bikes than something like Honda are having a go at? I'm not criticizing Honda because, hey, if we don't try these things, then you never find out, do you? But, um, yeah, small bikes, I like them. I think sometimes with technology, though, you, you get this thing of where new technology comes in and everybody sort of box at it, and then after a while it becomes accepted as the norm. I mean, if you, it's tough to argue safety features, isn't it? I mean, it'd be tough to argue the the seat belt or, or um, you know, shutter or uh, like safety glass for mo- for uh, automobiles. It's tough to argue that type of thing when it increases safety, and this could be a safety aspect. The only aspect yeah, yeah. of increased safety in cars that I've really noticed, I think, um, or that jumps out at me, is that cars are now so safe that people feel quite comfortable texting as they're driving along. And if there's an accident, oh, well, so what? Because the car will save me anyway. It doesn't matter. People feel so safe that they don't pay attention anymore. Exactly. Uh, whereas one time, it was very different when if you had any kind of an accident, A, you were going to destroy the car, and B, you were probably going to die. Whereas today, some of the car accidents you see are absolutely amazing, and yet people walk away from them completely uninjured. We had this theory a while ago that the single biggest safety feature you could have on a car would be a giant stainless steel spike that stuck out the steering wheel and ended one <laughs> millimetre from your chest. How carefully would you drive then? Yes, indeed. Exactly. <laughs> Wouldn't it be? How, how much attention would you pay if you had a spike pressed on your chest? You would be so careful. Well, the old car BMW haven't picked you up for their engineering department, Craig. You should be there, mate. They should be paying you a fortune. (laughs) Well, just think about old cars and that steering column that went all the way to the front of the car. In any kind of an accident, that steering column went right through your chest. That was normal. That's how people died, steering wheels through the chest. And now they've got two-part steering wheels that split – or steering columns that split whenever there's an accident instantaneously – and you've got this giant airbag that comes out of the steering wheel anyway. So how can you possibly get hurt? That's the thinking, and that's the problem. It's people feel I'm, too I'm, safe. I'm not a fan of um, technology that risks turning somebody into a person who can click off when they mm-hmm. become in control of something. And we do see that too often with GPS users. Um, for me, stimulation and awareness rock, and the two things go together. And I think one of my other fears about the development technology of technology is that whoever's developing it um, has to be um, so attuned to the key things of motorcycling so that they're not just designed by boffins, but they're designed by people who um, really appreciate the joy aspect. So the joy aspect isn't lost along the way by pure scientific logic. Exactly, Sam. 
Exactly. Good luck. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure is the, the self-balancing really is going to take away joy. It's probably going to bring more people out and give them joy of learning how to ride a motorcycle without having to worry too much about it balancing. But I'm just wondering if we don't get sort of caught up in these things one at a time. Like, okay, that's not a safety issue, but what about traction control and ABS brakes? Has anyone ever ridden a bike with ABS on it or traction control where they felt that it actually assisted them in, in, when they ran into a situation or an automobile for that matter? Well, I made a mistake with my ABS on a dirt track, and that cost me a motorbike. Um, you left it on? I left it on. Yeah. I camped overnight, coming down the hill, uh, and the four-wheel drive steaming up the other side. I had the ABS on. I had everything um, pulled on as hard as I could, and I, you know, I couldn't slide the back wheel. I couldn't do things like that. It's my fault. I, just, I, left, I left the ABS on. Better off with it off so you can slip the back wheel sideways and move around objects. Yeah, all the modern bikes now, they, the modern ABS is getting to the point where they're telling you, leave the ABS on off-road. It works, and it does. It's come a long way. Just the last year or two, the the word is, leave your ABS on off-road. Yeah, okay, yeah, wow, the, the, it's the, amazing. The bike I've just tested, it, it switches the ABS off on the back brake, mm-hmm. but it has it on the front. So you can lock the back, but yep. you can still have some control with the front wheel. Okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. I like the sound of that. And yeah, some, yeah, some of the newer models, some, some of the newer models actually have certain percentages and stuff, right? So there's there, there's different levels of ABS impact that you can have on your ride. The same with traction control too. Yeah. So, yeah, Carl, are you saying that um, these bikes you can actually set the level of traction control or ABS to suit your style of riding? Yeah, there's modes. I think on the KTM's that there's that that, that there's a whole selection screen of, of modes that that you can go through. You know, full on, full off, or the sport, this or that, you know, kind of That's for everything, though, not just ABS, right? That controls your traction control as well? Suspension as well. Yeah, right, but they're separate systems, and they each have separate settings. Yeah, that's getting into sophisticated, and I think where you run into a bit of an issue there is the expert rider knows what he wants to set. The beginning rider looks at all of that and goes, oh, my God, what do I do? Where do I start? Mm. So it's it's uh, the level of expertise required for that bike. Yeah. It's like an SLR camera, isn't it? You give an SLR to a novice photographer and they'll stick it on automatic and it'll probably stay there for the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. And it'll yeah, probably or, do just fine. Has anyone ridden the, uh, the, the Triumph 1200 Explorer when it first launched? No. Well, you know, when the Triumph Explorer 1200 first came out, right, we, we got a, a test of it over here in, in Virginia. And I get really excited about it. And there's so many lovely things about the bike. I mean, there really are from a touring, sport touring standpoint. But there was one thing about it which was kind of confounding, and that was the the kind of computerized control um, information dash. And then, and then how that worked with the controls on the handlebars, right? I mean, it, it, was, it, was, it was not, at least to me, it was not very thoughtfully designed, and it was actually on the borderline of it being dangerous, you know, so because it's too distracting, you know, like I couldn't change this or that. I didn't know what I was looking at. I was hitting buttons. You know, when you get frustrated with something, then you get into that primate kind of mentality (laughs) and then you just start hitting the same button over and over again. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and it's like the 20th time I hit it, I'm sure it'll work sort of thing, you know, but that's actually really dangerous. You know, uh, you know, I mean, there, there has to be a sense of, I think design and a sense of responsibility that someone has to keep in mind 
whenever they apply technology to these kinds of situations, you know what I mean? It's a, you know, and self-balancing, like we were talking about, may certainly sound like it's, uh, you know, it's a great safety feature. And perhaps it is, and perhaps it's not really, you know, for everyone. But the problem is, I think, when we have too much technology coming into what actually fundamentally used to be simple devices, and they actually start to become almost unrecognizable, you know, in, in terms of the original user for it. But you know what? For example, like I have two small kids, you know, and they're going to grow up with, with cell phones and self-balancing motorcycles or whatever have you, you know, and, and to them it may be totally normal, right? I wonder if it is just a matter of being old school, you know, being that you learned on a certain level of technology and when things advance, you sort of balk at it just because it's new. And the other thing I was going to mention is that with the numbers dropping, and I think I already said something about it earlier, with with the numbers dropping of riders, is this going to open up, you know, a whole new wave of riders? Is it going to make it mainstream? Well, I mean, that's a very good question, well, isn't it? Because, I mean, I, I was thinking about the difference between the F800 that I was riding last time I was in the States and my R80GS, and they're chalk and cheese. And when I first started riding the F800, um, I was looking at the new technology on there and thinking, wow, okay. And I mean, the F800, it's not, you know, super high tech, but there's enough on there to, to confuse a simpleton like me. But once I got used to it, I was thinking, actually, you know, this is actually making the bike an awful lot easier to ride. And it is a lot more fun. And am I prejudiced towards the high technology just because it's what I'm not used to? Um, and the answer to that, I had to admit, was yeah. And then I started saying, well, okay, you know, every time a bit of new technology comes along, I want to try it because I don't want to poo-poo it until I've had a go at it and I work out whether it works or not. I like the old school um, style of motorcycling. I like being able to fix things by the side of the road. But at the same time, um, if technology can make my ride even that much more exciting and that much more interesting, then, well, why not? I mean, bicycles used to have hard rubber rims and then they went to pneumatic rims and what a difference that made yeah there's always been this thing whenever new technology any new technology comes along there's always a, a negative reaction and eventually we get used to it and think it's normal i mean who wants to go back to points you've got to be kidding me but i remember when points or electronic ignition first came in there was a lot of people selling kits to convert your bike back to points Mm. That's, that's Which is laughable yeah, now. Yeah. now. Of course, it's ridiculous. Uh, now, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. I've done that. While Royal Enfield, <laughs> I had a, an ignition system that, uh, an electronic ignition system, it was absolute rubbish. I couldn't get the damn thing tuned, so I went back to points. Yeah, and, sometimes uh, in the early days. Yeah. Mm. yeah, after a little while, though, it didn't take very long before electronic ignition was so, so simple and easy and reliable, and it just virtually never fails. I mean, we wouldn't go back to points now. There's just no way. That's ridiculous. Even um, carburetors. Carburetors are dying. They're going to be dead very, very soon simply for uh, emissions regulations reasons. And electronic uh, fuel injection now is so good, so reliable, and it can be done so well. Why would you do carburetors? They're much more complicated. Uh, There's a lot more pieces. I love, I love the smell of petrol on my ammo carbies on priming and it drips on your fingers. It's fantastic. Of course. Yeah, it makes your gloves smell really good. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, Grant, there was one case. I think there was a, you know, like in Asia, the Kawasaki KLX 250. 
mm-hmm. is fuel injected. And in, in North America, or at least in the U.S., it's carbureted. And the guys in, I think, Thailand were getting the carburetors from the U.S. sent to Asia because it was easier for them to tune the carburetor. Yeah, it is. I, I hear the same sort of thing's going to be happening in reverse with um, the Enfield Himalaya because for um, Europe, it's an emission control and all of the rest of it. Um, it's going to be fuel injected. Um, but people that I was talking to at Motorcycle Life were already talking about ordering the carburetor kits from India so they could swap it over. Yeah, what somebody needs to do is like what Power Commander does for more high-end Japanese bikes is you need an, an interface that can be connected to your smartphone or your laptop and you can tweak it. As soon as that becomes a commonly accepted thing, uh, I mean, Power Commander as a company could easily create a gadget that would be cheaper than an, a carburetor kit. Mm-hmm. And away you go. It's the so, same thing. It's so, just done so, electronically. So here's a question for everybody. Which one is more frustrating? The black magic of a completely non-electronic carburetor or the hidden nooks and crannies of all of the electronic circuits and fizzy diddles that we deal with when we're dealing with fuel injection and sensors? Well, well, from my point of view, we got rid of the Prince of Darkness, Lucas Electrics, uh, designed in uh, your home country there, Sam. And uh, now we've moved to the black art of uh, computerization. I've got no idea how a computer works. If it's broken, you throw it away and you put a new one in. Well, I think that the the big change is going to be for a lot of people. Most people have no clue how to adjust a carburetor, how to tune a carburetor properly. I mean, I, I learned a long, long time ago how to do it for racing purposes. And the, the num- amount of misinformation that's out there about how to tune your carburetor constantly boggles my mind. Whereas I can see a properly designed electronic interface to your fuel injection that shows you exactly how much fuel is being input at the right time. And you can see a nice bar graph or curves. And if you want to fatten it up a little bit at 2,000 RPM because it doesn't feel quite right, you give it a little tweak. And you go out and you ride it and you got it or you made it worse. I mean, adjusting a graph electronically on your laptop or on your smartphone is not that difficult. It's pretty it's obvious. Where I, I, can, I can see Graham doing that on his KLR. Can't I, mate? <laughs> <laughs> well, we got to think about what's, what's the norm. What are most people doing these days? Everybody's got a smartphone. I mean, how many people don't have a smartphone? I even know Sam has a smartphone, which she didn't want a few years ago. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you dragged me to screaming and kicking, didn't you? Graham? Seemed to me I gave you your first smartphone, if I remember rightly. <laughs> yeah, you did, and I wasn't smart enough to use it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm looking at things like the uh, GS911 um, Wi-Fi gadget to connect to your GS to determine what the settings are and what's broken and solve your electronic ignition problems or general electronic problems on a GS. And that sort of thing with a nice interface to tune your carburetors and everything else is not, it it can't be far away. Somebody just has to say, yes, we want to do this. There is a demand for it and people will pay for it. Let's do it. It's not that difficult. Whereas I know from vast experience how hard it is to really get a carburetor just right and working well. It's not a simple thing. Yeah, but that's kind of what's wonderful about it too. For us tinkerers, yes. Yeah, for your right. average guy who just wants to ride the bike, it's not. I mean, yeah. mm. it's hard to believe for those of us in this conversation and for lots of people that are listening, 
but also for people that are listening will also agree with me. We get a lot of requests for, believe it or not, how to adjust your chain at a traveler's meeting. Okay? So what that means to me is that there's a lot of people who know nothing more about a bike than putting fuel in it, turning the key on, and twisting the throttle. That's all they know. And to be honest, that's all they want to know. And that's okay. I mean, how many people ever pop the hood on their car and take a wrench to anything inside there? Today, almost nobody. I don't even do that anymore. It's too hard. So all you people want, they want an appliance. They want something that they can get on and ride and enjoy. And when it needs fixing, you take it to the dealer and say, fix it. I'm glad you said that because that is want. so true that, that people are becoming sort of appliance operators rather than that. That's where I was sort of going with the skill. I've seen this with uh, ham radio, for instance, and I know it has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it's similar sort of thing. People used to be into ham radio because they built radios and they were into tinkering with this stuff. They understood electronics. Now they have become operators. Almost nobody builds a radio anymore. You buy it. The problem is, is the technology is so advanced that it isn't a thing you can tinker with anymore. And of course, that's what happens. And we know this as soon as we remove those carburetors and we throw in the electronics, it becomes something that um, there's there's a barrier there because there's I don't know what it is about the electronic thing, but it seems to scare everyone. We live in different worlds. Now, Carl, you went through um, China, didn't you? Mention the back blocks of China, what it would be like through there um, if people didn't fix things. Uh, oh, it's yeah. the same in uh, anywhere in Asia, you know. And it was an absolute joy when we uh, went up and um, uh, motorcycled through Asia to get on these little simple bikes and these guys could fix bikes anywhere on the side of the road. And uh, it, it's it's like a different world. But it was great to go back and see it. But do we really want to go there all the time? I'm not so sure. Yeah, well, lots of day-to-day regular riding. I think in 20 or 30 years, you're going to be going into some little tiny town in India and wheeling in with your bike, and there's going to be a guy sitting there with a computer. He's going to plug into your bike and tweak your systems for you. That's, that's probably The right. world yeah. is moving forward. It's changing. Yeah. That's a fact of life. We, we're, we're not going to go backwards. Nobody wants to go back to drum brakes, do we? Anybody? You know, we, were talking, we were talking earlier on about, um, you know, the, youth and technology and bringing more people into motorcycling and perhaps this sort of technology, this you, you can't fall off your bike technology is actually going to be attractive to, to more people. Um, as the next generation of motorcyclists hopefully comes through, then these guys are just going to be such computer whizzes. Um, they're just going to understand all of that sort of stuff. And it's just going to be absolutely normal for them. If motorcycles aren't something that they automatically recognize, then, and feel comfortable with technology-wise, then they'll be turned off. That's a good point. I mean, it's like giving somebody a, a push lawnmower or something. You know, they're, they're not going to want to even look at it. It's too simple, too basic, and, uh, and doesn't suit their needs. And, and, too much hard work. <laughs> yeah. well, I'll, I'll give you a, a real-life example nowadays. My son has a, a, a Honda Firestorm, um, and his maintenance skills lack a little, and he's blown the engine up. <laughs> oh, dear. So, Dad goes and gets the gets the bike and takes it to a friend and uh, and uh, we start it up and um, this guy's a, a really good ex racer and he said um, you know what there's a lot of little men inside there banging with big hammers I don't think it's worth fixing um, it's cheaper for me to go and get another engine and chuck in it so for a thousand dollars we can get an engine and throw it in it rather than pull it down, fix it, and put it back together. Mm, yeah. And uh, that's, 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 a, that's, a sim- 
Yeah, yeah. It cost us it cost us um, double the price to pull it apart and fix it rather than just go and buy another engine with twenty thousand k's on it and whack it in. Mm-hmm. And that's 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 the way things are going. Yeah, mechanics are becoming parts replacers, not parts repairmen. Uh, yep. I have a friend called John. He runs a garage, and um, he says it's almost impossible for him to hire a mechanic nowadays, but he can hire technicians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. They know how to test and find out what the machine tells them is broken, and they know how to replace the component. That's yeah. it. Actually repairing it, forget it. Um, yeah. I just had a, a really good example of that. The ABS unit on my GS failed, and I took it to the BMW dealer and said, how much? And they gave me a number that gave me heart failure. I think it was $1,200 Canadian, if I remember rightly. And I did a little searching around. And there's a place in um, Idaho, a little tiny place, that does nothing but fix EBS units. $250 returned with a year warranty. How can I go wrong? Hmm. It's repaired as opposed to the BMW dealer said, replace. There is no fix. You can't fix it. Replace it. Yeah, but as soon as you go Uh, to dealer, that always adds something to the cost of it, uh, doesn't it? I was reading an article the other day, Sweden um, has actually changed its direction as far as um, uh, to pull it out and throw it out and replace it um, way of doing things. They're actually um, recruiting unemployed people and teaching them how to repair stuff. Mm. Yeah. The whole conversation may be a moot point. Really, if you look at the big scheme of things, there's many people out there who will tell you that in the future, not too far down, because we've seen them already, we're going to have these vehicles that drive themselves. I mean, we already have that, right? Um, Look at the, the Tesla. So is that technology with a self-balancing system like Honda has, is that all of a sudden going to sweep into motorcycles and, and then what happens? I mean, maybe motorcycles in the future won't be what, what they are to us. Maybe they won't be something you ride for enjoyment. Maybe they'll just be transportation. I think it's well, always just for fun then. I mean, think of even your, your high-technology cars. You've got high-end sports cars like the Corvette or um, even the Mazda Miata is still a really nice sports car or the RX-8, I think it is now. Um, those are fun, exciting to drive sports cars. And there's also the Cadillac parked beside them or the Rolls-Royce or you know, your Buick, which is a luxury vehicle. There will always, as I was saying earlier, have, you'll have a range of vehicles. If you want sporty, you can have it. The big thing that we have today that we didn't have 40 or 50 years ago was you can have a huge range of kinds of vehicles. It used to be very... There was like one motorcycle. You bought a 650cc motorcycle. That was it. If you wanted a dirt version of that, yes, they'd had high pipes, but that was the only difference. Today, you've got so many so specialized vehicles. I think you'll always be able to get more and more and more specialized vehicles to get exactly what you want. Manufacturers are even getting into customization. The BMW R9T, you can order it with all kinds of custom bits and pieces, and it's designed from the factory to be customizable to make it suit you and what you want. And that's one of the beauties of motorcycling, isn't it? It doesn't matter who we are, um, what our passions are, what variety of motorcycling we want to have. We can make it our own, not only because the range of bikes are available, but because we can accessorize it. We can turn it into something that suits us as individuals. And I think, I hope that never gets lost by dumbing down motorcycling. Yeah, I don't think that's really a problem. I think it, the, the very nature of the bike and the nature of the people who buy them means that there will always be range or a bit of possibilities of changing it and modifying it. Hopefully, when they ever get to the point where the only change you can do is paint it. But 
Grant, have you heard about um, the new BMW Touratech Rambler that they're, they're just bringing yes. out? Yes, awesome. That, no, that, I mean, that's that's perfect for what we're talking about, isn't it? They've taken exactly what we're talking about. A bike that was um, developed to the extreme high-tech-wise, or a couple of bikes, and they've looked at those bikes and they've taken all of the bits that they really like, um, gone back to some old-fashioned technology and in inverted commas to make a bike that is a darn sight lighter and a darn sight more off-road capable. So, so long as that sort of stuff is still happening, I feel really good about the development of technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the funny part about that bike is that it started out as the street model, not the GS. Mm. But there, yeah, I I know Yelkin at uh, Touratech, and his whole love is to make really, really cool, fun stuff. That's what he wants to do, and that's that's his whole focus. Is is this going to be cool? Is this going to be good? Is it going to work really, really well? And he specializes in that, and he does an amazing job. And I think that bike's going to be fantastic. It's going to be expensive because it's not standard. But I'd be willing to bet that within a few years, BMW will bring out an HP version that's somewhat similar. I mean, it's an obvious possible market. Can I bring us back round to adventure motorcycling um, and overlanding with regards to technology? Because this is a question that I get asked quite a lot by people who are coming into the world of overlanding. And they say to me things like, um, yeah, but gosh, you know, if the bikes get really high tech, it's going to be rubbish to go overland." And I was really interested in what I was saying earlier on about, um, well, you know, how many people nowadays travel without a smartphone or a laptop with them anyway? And um, as the technology does become available to to do the tweaking as you're traveling, um, then surely that actually makes an awful lot of sense. And in the end, I mean, the reality is that I, from, from what I read, higher tech new bikes don't go wrong very often. And if mm-hmm. you treat it nicely, then, well, it's like any other motorcycle, isn't it? Um, treat it well, and it'll do you well. Yeah, that's the biggest thing I found. Um, a really good example is our own trip around the world on our 1986 R80 GS. We did 50 countries, hundred, couple hundred thousand kilometers, and we had zero breakdowns. No breakdowns. Nothing broke. Nothing damaged. Um, no issues, and yet. There's hundreds of people out there that will tell you long litany of issues and problems and breakdowns and things that went wrong. And 99% of the time, I can look at it and say, yep, you didn't maintain that. And it's all about maintenance. If you look after the bike, treat it right, don't abuse it, don't ride it like you're out for a weekend ride with the boys and you're going to go as fast as you can and really have a fun ride. Of course, you might crash, you might end up in a hospital, but you're long-distance adventure travel has to be done sensibly at a sensible speed so that you actually are going to make it there. You're going to finish. You're not going to get hurt. You you don't want the bike to break, so don't ride it so hard that you're going to crash it and trash it. Um, ride it sensibly and look after it. Maintain it properly. Give it proper service. The manufacturer gives you particular mileages at which you're supposed to do things. I follow it to the letter, and I'm a trained mechanic. Um, you do all that stuff. You change the oil. You check the nuts and bolts. You just check everything on a regular basis. And it's unlikely that it'll break. But you got to look after it. And most people, I find, don't look after the bikes and then complain and trash the bike as being a piece of junk. Oh, yeah, well, I haven't done a service on it for 15,000 kilometers. Well, you know, that might have something to do with the problem. So I, I get 
quite on a bit of a rant here about it, but uh, I think well, it's all about after it. <laughs> yeah, I can't help it. Oh, I was just going to talk about um, uh, the comments we got when we took a fuel injected bike across the world a couple of times, and uh, people saying, "Oh, you, you know, it'll clog up. You'll get bad fuel." Well, yeah, we've got bad fuel, but we made sure that we uh, got when we got good fuel, or we cleaned the system out as as quickly as we could. Never had a problem with it. Never had a problem. Uh, so you know that's uh, that's a, a classic. The next thing we had on our list we were going to talk about today was pushing limits and uh, red flags, dangers, and, and being a rebel. And, and I thought we'd kick this off. I, I'm going to use something that Graham Field did as an example. Is that okay, Graham? Uh-huh. <laughs> so It had to be you, didn't it? It, was only, it wasn't that many episodes ago that we had Graham on and we talked about his trip into going to get, trying to get to Mosul uh, in Iraq. What we're looking at here is when you ride that trip in a muscle, by the way, and I'll just sort of recap it there. I mean, you, you sort of pushed your luck, right? You went into a spot that you probably, well, you definitely shouldn't have been into to see what it was like. Am I paraphrasing this correctly? Yeah. You know, and so you push your luck and you came out and you had a great trip and it made a great story. And I'm really glad you had the audio from it. But when we're riding, how do you guys determine your limits when you've went out there? How have you, how have you uh, developed your limits and what do you use for limits? How do you know when something is dangerous or maybe just dangerous for you? Like some of the, the and we've talked a little bit about this in the past. A lot of times people talk about going through rough areas like Graham did there, heading for Mosul. He made it through. He could easily say, you know what? It's not that dangerous. I went through, yeah, there was stuff that had been blown up before I got there. There were people with guns, but it really, in the end, I was safe. So that means it's sort of safe. But isn't that sort of like saying, hey, I just ran through a minefield. And if you run really fast you're actually safe, like it's a, it's a safe place to go. So, I mean, how do we come up with these things? How do we come up with our limits? And I think, uh, Graham, you're probably the first one to, to, to ask. Oh, am I? Uh, um, I, it's, I, it's really hard to say because I don't want uh, – I don't want to say you touch coat at these places because if someone doesn't get uh, – I'm responsible. Um, it's just I, – I think – we, we, we all have instincts, and, I, and uh, it's just getting in touch with them. And I think once you get on the road, once you spend some time, and I can only speak as a solo traveller, you do, with, with less distractions, with less of life's distractions, you do, I think, become back in touch with your instincts, and, and it's really, really important to listen to them. And they're always there. <laughs> you just have to assume they're going to be right. So... It's you can feel it. I've been in places which I've just felt are wrong. And whether it's been a stopped at a hotel reception, and I've been cold and I've wet, and I've just no, I'm, I'm not even going to stay here. It's, it's just it's just wrong. But there's a there's a lot to be said for the, the feeling you get and knowing your own. I, I suppose just knowing your own limits. I don't know. It's it's it's, it's, a, it's a, something that's very hard to voice and put into words. It, it, it's a feeling r- rather than there's you can't. You can't quantify it. <laughs> yeah, it's all well, gut it's, feeling, I find. It is gut feeling, but there's also um, you have to put your smart brain on sometimes. And I have to say, if Brian said to me, let's go to Iraq, I'd probably say no. You know, because I just kind of think Iraq is too dangerous. But then I'm far more conservative than Brian 
And because he controls the bike, if he wanted to go to Iraq, we'd probably end up there and just hope that we're as lucky as you, Graham, and come out to be able to tell the tale. Well, it wasn't lucky because firstly, it was in 2013. And it's very hard when you see what's happening now to remember how things were three and a half years ago. So it wasn't blind stupidity. It was a, 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 a northern Iraq, Kyrgyzstan, was a, a very peaceful place. So yeah. And so it, it wasn't it wasn't simply just blindly going into 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 somewhere where you would uh, guaranteed find trouble. It you know three years ago or maybe a little more four or five years ago people were riding through Syria to get through to to Africa and it was fine. Yes. You know the, the world changes. <laughs> well, we went through Quetta and Peshawar and places like that in Pakistan. And now whenever you see it on the news that scores of people have been killed in a bombing, you know it will be Quetta or Peshawar. And um, they certainly weren't fond of Westerners when we were there, but there was no real problems. But they're not uh, two cities that I would like to venture into again now in the current climate. So you're right, Graeme, time changes. You need to be aware of, of the current circumstances in the places that you're heading to and be smart about it. Yeah, or at least know what know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now, now, here's a question: Does does everyone think that it's it's more or less safe to travel either solo or even just with one other person? Hmm. Well, I think that's an interesting question. Just when you say more or less safe, Carl, because that's what I was thinking of when I'm hearing this conversation go on. I'm thinking, well, Shirley said that she wouldn't go to Iraq. Um, or wherever, let's just say a dangerous place. She wouldn't go to this dangerous place. Brian may go because he doesn't quite see the danger. Does it mean that there's a different level of danger from one person to the next? It's perception. It, it is perception, we tend isn't to, it? Scientifically, we tend to underestimate the danger of things we're used to. For instance, falling in a bathtub is actually quite common and a lot of people get a lot of injuries from it, but we don't even think about it. And we tend to overestimate the dangers of things we aren't familiar with. So if we don't know about it or don't understand it or haven't been there, we think it's dangerous. Whereas riding a motorcycle, we all think is probably safe. It's fine, right? No big deal. But the reality is motorcycles are not safe. I take it back to a more basic instinct than that, Grant and Graham. I, I think it's the old um, fight or flight uh, mentality. You know, some people will fight. Uh, in certain circumstances, where others will flee, and sure. um, I, I think I think uh, we all have a different level, and uh, you, you act accordingly to what your level is, and you know you, you're constantly assessing the risks, the dangers. Uh, uh, go past that bus, get past that bus, and all of a sudden something comes around the corner. Where are you going to go? You got an out? You got an in? You know, and if you haven't got an out when you're riding a bike, um, you're in trouble. You're going to get into trouble really quickly. And uh, I think that's, that's another thing that you learn after riding a bike for a long time, that you always have uh, a margin where there's an escape route somewhere, whether it's run off the side of the road or um, pass on the wrong side or whatever it is. Um, you, you, you build up those senses as you ride more. I think that's, that's very true. And... <laughs> I'll be accused of this. I'll probably get a punch in the kidneys. But sometimes the red mist does come down uh, when you're riding, and I think we've all been there and done that. Oh yeah, just a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And if you know what your body's doing, your adrenaline uh, pumps up, your heart rate goes up, your senses go up, and uh, anyone who has been in a, um, a life and death situation will tell you that you can maintain that for only a certain time. And when you stop, you come down. That's why when you finish a, a good hard ride with a couple of mates, you like to sit down and relax and sometimes you go to sleep because you go up and you go down. Mm-hmm. When you're riding long distance, you can't do that. Say you're doing an adventure ride, you've got to uh, pull yourself back even further. Anyway, it's just my two bobs worth. And um, he has received many kidney punches <laughs> over Along the years the <laughs> when that red mist comes down. I'd just like yeah. to point that out now. Carl, back to the point that you were saying, though, about the difference between riding solo or riding two up. What were you getting at there? Well, I mean, I mean, the thing is, is right. It seems to me like there's actually multiple facets of what we would perceive as danger, right? So there, there are lots of things that are dangerous. So, for example, if you wanted to kind of break it down, you could have dangers that exist kind of externally to you: weather, road conditions, other drivers, traffic, animals, other things like that. Uh, and then you have the internal dangers, which largely revolves around uh, bad judgment, which can you know result from things like uh, fatigue, not being kind of like familiar with an area, uh, customs. Peer, peer pressure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's Riding with another guy, you tend to ride a little harder and quicker than you yeah, might. Yeah, right, and that's otherwise. what I'm saying. So, you know, I know Sam and I have, 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 have talked in the past, uh, you know, about, about, yeah, you know what, actually when you're riding solo, what, what happens is you tend to get a lot more goodwill from people that are coming up because they want to help you because they yeah. understand that you're riding solo. Whereas... If you're riding with two, and certainly if you're riding with more than two, three, or four people, you know, you create this kind of little judgment microcosm in your group. You know what I mean? Because you can't necessarily trust your, you know, like, so if you got three guys or whatever, three people, uh, and you're going into a situation, even let's say it's a bad road, there's no political anything, you know, there's no, you know, there's no worries about uh, uh, liberation fighters or, or rebels or anything like that, right? But let's just say you're, you're, you're going into a bad road. You got three guys. Two guys might be like, "Yeah, you know what? This is okay." But then there's another guy. He's got the butterflies in the stomach, right? And he's saying, "No, you know, I, I have a feeling that if I go down, down this road, you know, that that is not going to happen, right?" So, you know, ultimately, I guess if you wanted to kind of distill the question down, is 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 it generally safer to be riding solo? And receiving the help of locals, being able to rely and trust only on your own judgment, which of course is fallible, or do we think that it's safer to have a kind of collective kind of knowledge and or input from what might result if we're in a group? I guess for me, I'm lucky enough to have been able to travel in both ways. So the first four years of, of the big trip was on my own most of the time, and the second four years was riding with Birgit. Um, and they're completely different ball games. And my answer to to this really has got to be um, for the greater percentage of the time that I was traveling on my own, I felt perfectly safe and absolutely fine. Um, but there were times when Birgit and I were traveling together where I felt significantly safer because there was another pair of eyes watching what was going on, for example. Mm. Um, but also you guys were talking earlier on about um, instinct. 
And there are some situations that you find yourself in where where you've got two sets of instincts at work. Um, You've got a a greater chance of coming out of that situation more safely. Um, Birgit's um, instinct, for example, is way better than mine, and I drop us in it all of the time. Um, When she allows herself to be persuaded by me that it's a good idea to do something, um, and sometimes it comes off. We went into Colombia, for example, and back at the, when we went into Colombia, um, it was a place that was still on the well. You really shouldn't go to list. And but I really wanted to go there because the stuff that I'd read about it, it just made it sound like an, an awesome country. And I'd been watching very carefully what was happening um, as as to how safe the country was becoming and how the politics was changing and so on. And I was thinking, you know, this this is just a window of opportunity, and it may be the perfect time to go there. And Birgit's instinct was, well, yeah, I'm not too sure about this. And my instinct was, actually, you know, we, we've got to try this. And I think most ADV and overlanding motorcyclists have this sort of gene that says, let's go. Let's try it. Let, let's see if we can. Let's find out what's around that next bend. And if we don't, then we'll never find out. And this is where our instincts have to become so tuned in. And Graham was absolutely right when he said that the longer you're on the roads, the better honed your instincts um, become. But I guess one of the reasons that I travel fairly slowly is because when I'm coming up towards a situation where I think it's potentially risky, I'm asking myself a whole lot of questions such as, do I have to do it? If I do do this, will it be interesting? If I don't do it, um, will I really regret not having had a go? And what's the worst that can happen? And traveling slowly gives you the opportunity to actually have those thought processes and to talk to the locals and to talk to the people that are coming towards you. So combine all of those things with your instincts and actually dodgy situations, um, you just avoid them like the plague because they stand out like mountains in the middle of a desert. Or you just think, well, actually, it's a pimple and the view up there might be kind of cool and I may not be this way again. And one of my favorite overlanding sayings is it's very difficult to be in the wrong place at the wrong time doing the wrong thing. And for me, that's one of the beauties about traveling with a bike. You know, if you find yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time, hey, you've got two wheels and an engine. You can get out of of, of trouble so quickly. And uh, Sam, I think what you were saying about um, the locals and um, Carl also taking advice from the locals, they are the best ones to tell you whether you should or should not be there. Um, And I've just got two quick stories. Um, We were going up into the Karakoram Mountains in Pakistan and um, a a person working at the Australian Embassy said to us, stop at this town, don't stop at this town, stop at this place, and gave us some really good advice on where we would be welcomed with open arms and where we probably wouldn't be welcomed. And he was spot on. So we had just spectacular times in places like Gilgit but some of the more dubious towns we just rode through and uh, so our adventure wasn't spoiled. And on another occasion when we were in Colombia and we'd um, needed to get some money from an auto bank and um, a policeman took us down to the bank because we couldn't find it and when we hadn't come back to the roadblock, he came back down to check that we were all right and that they were refilling the machine so it was taking longer to get our money and when we rode back through the roadblock, we asked him where there was a good place to stay in town. And he said, don't stay here tonight. They know you've got money. The locals saw you at the bank. Um, wherever you stay, everyone will know where you are. Go to the next town. So we went yeah. to the next town. 
So you Very just cool. take the advice and uh, and then your your adventure isn't spoiled by being robbed or having something unpleasant happen. So. I mean, that's very, very cool. It's a, it's a perfect example of, of the sort of thing that people do to help you have a good time in their country. Most people that we came across, um, yeah, they, they don't want you to get into trouble, do they? They want you no. to go away thinking, wow, what a buzzy place this is. Yeah, they're, generally people are very proud of their country and they want you to have a good experience. And we were in Central America during the Contra Wars in 87, and there was lots of places there that were considered to be very dangerous, don't go there. And the locals were extremely good about saying, don't go down this road, do that one instead. Yeah. And we had all kinds of help. And people were very friendly and very helpful. And they were really quite concerned that we were safe. And it was yeah. great. Yeah. We, had, we never really had any issues at all. We did go down one road that we were told was safe. And as we're driving along, a, you know, just a little country road, and about 50 soldiers jumped out of the woods, or soldiers, we don't know. They were miscellaneous uniforms and guns and pointed them at us. And we figured, oh, shit, this is not going to be good. But it turned out just fine. All they asked was, you know, where, who are you? Where are you going? What are you doing? Let's see your passport. And that was really all they wanted. You, oh, the funny part was one guy, the um, guy in charge, looked at our bike. And we have a little pocket, like a side pocket on the back of the bike just behind Susan and he said what's in here we opened it up and he looked inside and there was a pack of playing cards sitting there and he looked at it and looked at me and said para me which means for me (laughs) 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 and being stupid (laughs) stupid and new to the whole thing of traveling I said no no that's ours and he said para me <laughs> and he was delighted. And you think about it, here's a bunch of soldiers in the middle of the jungle and they've got a pack of playing cards. You're now their best friend. <laughs> and he was probably a poker shark and he's now resting in a very large hacienda somewhere that he bought stealing money on my playing people cards. off cards. <laughs> Absolutely. So sometimes a little thing like that to give away, but I think the lesson that we learned was you just trust your instincts, you listen to the locals, and be friendly, no problem, just relax. And even an ugly situation like that could have been if you treat it right, and especially with Susan on the back, you know, a single guy or two or three guys on bikes, I think would be more at risk and the soldiers would be more concerned about us. But here's a husband and wife, you know, I mean, how dangerous can they be? You know, you don't usually take your... (laughs) wife on the back into a dangerous situation or you're not likely to be a pair of spies. If only they knew, though, Grant, how (laughs) lethal Susan can be when let loose on a bad situation. Yeah, Yeah, well, we won't say anything about Birgit with that. Um, (laughs) Same thing. (laughs) Stay out of the way. Talking of which, I mean, Birgit and I had a situation in northern Colombia. We'd had mechanical breakdowns all day. It was really stupid, and I just could not find what the problem was, and it was driving me dotty. But the day was ticking along, and we were riding way in the outback in northern Colombia. Um, And it got dark, and I always say to people, don't ride at night. And there we were, riding in a reasonably un- dodgy area in northern Colombia. In daylight, it would have been fine. At night time, my goodness, the hair on the back of my neck was standing up. And all of a sudden, all of my senses are just pinging with unease. And we're riding down this dirt road. And the only light that we've got is the headlight. And 
all of a sudden there are blue flashing lights behind us. And at that particular time, um, the cops in the more remote areas of Colombia had a reasonably dodgy reputation. Mm-hmm. And Birgit and I just looked at each other and we thought, right, okay, this is where it starts to get very nasty. And, you know, we just had this little light bubble of headlight and, and flashing blue lights. And it was very spooky, pitch black surrounding that. And these two cops swaggered towards us and in, in Spanish, of course, just, what are you doing? Um, <laughs> um, we're trying to get to a hotel because we've had breakdowns. You do realize it's not safe for you to be riding at nighttime. Well, yeah, but we kind of didn't have any choice. We didn't feel it was a good idea to be camping. No, it would be really stupid. Come on, we'll take you to a hotel. <laughs> yeah. So the thing is, we talk about using our gut feeling and then also being more, the more experienced you are uh, as traveling on the road, the better off you are. Graham, I'll go back to that little piece that we did with you in your recording that you did at the time. You were indecisive at the, at the time. You were sort of talking to yourself saying, well, you know, am I, am I just being uh, overly paranoid or is there real fear here? How do you distinguish between that gut and the learned, or how, or how do you how do you get there? Like in other words, look at a new rider perspective. Somebody goes out and they're going to ride, and you, and you guys are going to give them advice on how to trust their gut. How can they trust their gut if they don't have the experience? Well, I mean, sort of like I said in that piece, it was that's one of the advantages of leaving from home is the transition is slow. As, and and you slowly leave the familiar for leaving England, for example, into sort of Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and then into Turkey and Islamic countries. And it's a slow transition. So you slowly do become sort of more aware of, of these things and get in touch with it. But people who suddenly fly their bikes out and find themselves in a, in a brand new country, culture, language and everything, straight off the plane, reuniting with their bikes – that's got to be a harder transition. So uh, for me, I always leave from home because I've, been, well, I've changed me home now as well, which kind of helps. But um, it's, it's uh, I, I don't know what I can say. It's, it's, it's just, uh, it's just a, a time thing, I think. I've spent, and again, going back to sort of, for me, I can only talk as a solo traveller and it's just that, that transition and, and that time. And you... You, what becomes normal roadblock in through Russia and there's constant checkpoints, army checkpoints, and they do all have automatic weapons. Coming from England, it is still and it still scares me. I hate guns; they really scare me. And people with guns don't care how responsible they are, and uh, yet yeah, it does become the norm in your day. And and it's uh, I don't know what I can say. It's just a judgment that you slowly get as you ride. It's, it's uh, again, it's very hard to quantify. It's really hard to put into words because it's, you, how can you describe instinct and gut feelings? It, it's, it's something that happens, not something you can describe or learn. But you just gave an excellent tip there though. That thing about leaving home, like, you know, starting out somewhere easy and sort of working your way into it. I mean, that's an excellent tip because that's a way to sort of acclimatize yourself. I mean, that's usually what you do when you're doing something that's, you know, wildly different from your normal life, right? Is acclimatize yourself. Uh, Acclimatizing, another thing that I tend to do when I pull into a new big city, especially, or a new country, is just find a cafe at the corner on a side corner and sit there and watch traffic. 
get the feel yep. for the place. What's yep. it look like? How do they drive? What are the techniques? Does everybody just go where they feel like, or is there some sort of, is there any sort of road rules or is it just find a space and find a way to go? Um, it can be very, very different. Even coming from North America and going to England, oh my God, those guys are nuts. You know, everybody's squeezing in everywhere and there's three cars in one lane and bikes are squeezing up the side. And, oh Lord, this is crazy. And yet once you get used to it, it's perfectly fine. And you wonder why we don't do that like that here in North America. You know, here it's, this is the way we do it and you stay in your lane and you do not leave your lane and you do not lane split or anything like that. Whereas in Europe, it's more, let's cooperate and we will all get there sooner if we cooperate and share space. So it's a very different way of thinking. And I think it's the same thing with just about everything. You have to get into the local thinking and how it works. It's a huge advantage. That's such a good tip. I think Graham's I think- right. I think Graham's right. Um, you know, I call it the rhythm of the road. And what you do is uh, when you're starting from home, it's a lot easier. And um, when we did our first trip, we started in England because uh, going through Europe is a lot easier than just uh, getting assaulted with the senses in Asia, for example. But we've flown into Hanoi, and that's that famous uh, roundabout intersection near the lake in um, Hanoi itself, uh, where it's just crazy. <laughs> But there's a hotel with a, a balcony um, two stories up. You can just sit there and watch it. And we sat there and had one of their fine beers and um, uh, watched the traffic, and you get used to it. And when we went and yep. picked up the bikes and started to ride in amongst it, we were ready for it. Uh, well, yeah. some of us were ready well, for some it. Well, <laughs> someone just closed their eyes and sat on the back. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's all part of it. It's the rhythm of the road. Yeah. I think you guys are making and, such And, and to such take that a little comments. bit further, yeah, to take that a little bit further, Sam, you know, the rhythm of the road, when um, it's a little different, it, it, surely it must raise your awareness so that you know that there might be a risk coming up if it's a little bit different than what you're used to. And leading into the rhythm of the road from leaving home is a lot easier than just flying and doing it. No doubt about that. Do you know, a lot of the overlanders that I meet, both four-wheeled and two-wheels, I often find that the two-wheel overlanders are happier than the four-wheels. And I think one of the reasons for that is because we're actually out in it and all of our senses are firing. We're not um, enclosed at all or cosseted in any in any way. Um, we are smelling, hearing, thinking, feeling, touching, the whole blooming lot. Um, and and uh, the vulnerability of being out in there also, I think, gathers a certain amount of respect from local people, which which helps. But the tip of taking it easy um, when you start start out on a trip, that's so important. I meet people who are so excited about hitting the road and finally the, the trips come in together and they blast for the first weeks and wear themselves out and get themselves into trouble and don't see anything and get exhausted and and actually just taking it easy and enjoying everything that there is to see and soaking it all up and allowing yourself to adapt to the different places makes so much sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the other thing is um, some of them start out with an agenda. Uh, when I've got to do 347 kilometres today, then 560 kilometres the next day to get to this town, it's like um, one of those busman's holidays. Oh, it's Wednesday. You must be in Bulgaria. You know, you, you can't do that. No, it's Tuesday. Some, We're in Bulgaria. It is Wednesday. I'm sorry, it's, it's, Wednesday, it's Wednesday here, Grant. And we're oh, okay. Wednesday, sorry. It's Wednesday here as well. So we can be in Bulgaria in two, day, two different days. Wow. 
But, but some people don't have um, the luxury of being able to do that. They've got a limited period of time in which they want to achieve their trip. And they've got this trade-off, don't they? Um, do I see all of the things that I really want to see and I may never get the opportunity to see these things again? Or do I take it um, more gently and see what I see? And it's such a hard toss-up, isn't it, when you've got yeah. to make that decision? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I think one of the things that people learn, though, is that Trying to do it fast eventually means that all you're doing is skimming the surface and, and basically ticking a checkbox. Yep, saw that. Yep, saw that. Yep, saw that. What did it look like? Uh, where's the picture? I got a picture. I don't know. I'll somewhere. have to look at my photos. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, what's the point? The number one thing that I keep hearing from people all the time is the trip got better when we slowed down. Mm-hmm. I hear that all the time. That brings me very nicely, Grant, onto what I was going to say next, and that was if people get tired when they're traveling, then the risk factor increases quite dramatically. Normally, their instincts might be firing um, really, really well, and they're being observant, and their senses are working, and so on. But you get tired and start pushing yourself, and all of a sudden, it's, it's I don't know, it's almost like you stuck a couple of duvets over the top of your instincts and well mm-hmm. what are you going to see and and feel if you've done that yeah, well, that's like when brian it starts saying, getting dangerous yeah it's like brian was saying earlier when you do this adrenaline rush thing and realistically if you're in a strange country and you're riding quickly and trying to do all kinds of stuff your adrenaline is pumped and at some some point you crash mentally and your skills and your safety just goes down the toilet and it's a bad bad combination it just trying to do too much too fast it's far better to slow down take your time and really see things well and then come back another day there's always another day sort of back to where we started with this though the whole thing of the gut feeling and, and knowing when you're pushing your limits and we talked about Graham going into Mosul and, and you know one could say he pushes limits one might say you're working within the limits how do you teach that to someone who doesn't have that experience like what, what are they supposed to start out as as that um, that beginner adventure rider that beginner traveler how are they supposed to determine where those limits are how do they get those feelings they're called noobs and, and yeah. <laughs> they have to eat the same crap that everybody else has to eat, you know, before, you know, they learn that, like, how to trust your feelings. Is that what it is, though, Carl? Is it trusting your feelings? Like, do you already start out with those feelings? And this is sort of where I've been going with from the start of this. Do, are you born with those feelings? Is this, is this something that's, that's hardwired into our DNA? Yeah, I, I think, think everything not. is born with the feelings. I mean, even worms and cats and dogs and stuff. I mean, we all have some basic equipment. That but if you don't us. have any experience to make a decision, um, like riding at 100 miles an hour on a twisty mountain road, if you're an experienced rider, so what? If you're a beginning rider, it's absolutely terrifying. So what, with, what instinct with, says that that's terrifying? You, you have to learn what's scary and what's not. And I think but, one but, of the things I, that the, I had uh, – sorry, Shirley, I just want to just finish this thought I have before I lose it, which I will very shortly – I think I've already lost it. Yes. <laughs> in your town, in, in, in your hometown, go to the area that is known to be not good. In Vancouver, it's the downtown east side. Walk through downtown east side for a couple of hours as it gets dark. And if you don't start feeling a little nervous and start getting some senses that maybe things aren't as good as they could be, maybe you're just, your instincts aren't very good and you need to start paying attention. And that's a, a relatively safe way of testing your instincts. Just a thought. It's also probably more dangerous than anything we've ever done. 
going to the <laughs> dangerous part of your local capital city. True. Um, but I think what I was going to say, um, some people I don't think ever get that instinct. They're just yeah. not wired that way because you you read things online and in magazines and you think, well, what the hell were they thinking doing that? Yeah. Because they just weren't thinking. And it's not something, I don't think it's something you can teach people. It's something that um, some people will gain with the experience and some people won't. And that's why we're all different, which makes it an interesting place to live. To be fair, though, sometimes those things you look at that are in a magazine or you hear about are those those instances where someone just didn't get away with something. You know, like that time where you've gotten a situation and went, whoa, that was really close. Had I just stepped over there, that would have been it for my leg or something like that. That's one of those times where, you know, luck wasn't with you or happenstance, whatever you want to call it, wasn't with you. And it took them out. It doesn't necessarily mean that they've got bad judgment because I think we've all yeah, been true. in situations where we go, wow, that was close. If only this had changed, that would have been the end, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, but at the same that's, time, that's, people... That's, 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 kismet, that's fate. But uh, I think the best advice you can give newbies is... Um, Listen to crusty old buggers like us and take advice and then uh, take it on board and accept or reject it. But please accept some of our advice. Yeah, well, speak for yeah. yourself there when you said about the crusty old buggers. But um, you use the word fate there. That's only if you believe there is fate. I mean, fate means that something is, is you know, prearranged for you. Something is planned. Yeah. I don't oh, sometimes you've got to believe that your number's up or your number's not up when you think of some of the things that people do and get away with. As you say, Jim Luck was on their side, so. Yeah, but yeah. I think well, that's happens. It's just a, it's just a name, isn't it? it? You call it, some parts of the world they call it kismet, some part of the world they call it fate. Some people say, well, my number wasn't up, so I've lived to tell, a, tell mm. the tale. It's just a word Inshallah. for it. Lady luck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I th- do you know, I think a lot of it depends on the gene pool that we've climbed out of. It depends on the life experience that we've gathered until we've got to the stage where we are putting ourselves into environments that we really, really don't know. Because, And then we're taking it slowly, then the combination of those two things either starts to work for you or it doesn't. But you've also got what sort of mood you're on on that particular day that you've got to throw in the pot. And the things mm-hmm. that you haven't thought about and haven't planned for and those totally unexpected things but aren't those a lot of the things that we're actually out there for? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And if you don't have them, how much adventure is it really? Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, Everybody wants a certain different level of adventure. It's all what you're prepared for and what you're willing to do. I mean, some people think bungee jumping is absolutely insane, and yet other people bungee jump every, every chance they can get. So everybody has a different level of what they're willing to accept as risk, as sensible, or bungee jumping is perfectly safe. It's perfectly fine. There's no issue. And then somebody else is going to say, are you, are you out of your mind? So and, and what Sam different. was saying about what, what mood you're in, yeah, uh, you absolutely. confront a situation with a couple of border guards and you've had a bad ride and you are really, really shitty on the world, your mm-hmm. attitude towards them will make their attitude, sorry, attitude towards you completely different. Absolutely. Whereas if you walk into a border or into a, um, a control area where there's a, people with, of authority and you smile and you say, hi, how are you going, and, you know, do the shrug your shoulders, I'm sorry, we're Australian, we only speak English, and make a bit of light of it, they will treat you a lot better than if you walk in and get bolshy and I'm not doing this and you can't tell me to do that. Well, this is a lesson that's 
learn pretty fast, right? Like, you get along a lot better with rangers in the world if you just kind of approach them with a certain level of, of you know, just being polite, having a certain Correct. amount of, of just respect for, for who they are and the kind of situation that they're in. And it's always amazed me how there are some people that, you know, I, I would classify them as hotheads. Uh, you know, they, 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 you know they, they go out on these trips and then some small thing goes wrong and then they just absolutely lose it. And I'm just wondering, like, how do you think you're going to make the rest of this? Is danger sort of dynamic? Does it feed off of you? Like, Graham, if you went into that, that situation that you went into and you were a different type of person, would, it, would you think it through and think, oh, yeah, it would have been definitely different for me? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, it was like I said in that piece, uh, which is why I'm not retelling the story because, I mean, we only just did it. But, um, yeah, in any situation, you're in someone else's country. You Be humble. Be why, why would you be anything but humble? You don't know their rituals or anything about their place. And uh, you, you have to be because if – and I've seen people who are, who've, who've travelled too long or just think there's something special. It's like, you're not looking in that pannier. <laughs> they will. And you ain't going to stop them. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll probably look in it even more thoroughly and they'll look in everything else too as soon as you object. And it, it goes back to what Shirley said earlier. I mean, some people bring it on themselves, you know. You don't have to talk to someone too long to realise they're just a bloody idiot and you can't help them, you know. You can't give them advice. This is a, a Darwin theory, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Very sadly so. I have two, yeah. th- two twins that you met in mind when you're saying that to Graham. well one of them yeah (laughs) well maybe why are they like that maybe they're already out of their comfort zone and they're behaving that way because they're they've already gone further than they comfortably would want to and uh and if they've if they've done that then they're already beyond the the feeling of instinct and uh so i think you know they're on a they're on a downward spiral there when they've got to that stage Mm, yeah but but it's but it's also why i think some people choose to do it, you know, I mean, some, some people, I think they have an idea that they want to do this, you know, because they want to explore and in the process of exploring, they find a kind of reflection of themselves in the world. And this is how they learn about themselves in the world. But I think that there are some folks out there that do it and it's a conquering thing. Yes. You know what I mean? We do that a lot. I'm going to be the first to do this, and this is this, and I did this, and this was great, you know. And and uh, you know, when I was in Western China, I would often hang out in the mountains and hear things from mountain climbers, you know. And you would think that, considering what they do, they would be pretty chill. But a lot of them apparently are just, you know, oh well, I'm doing it with sherpas. I'm doing it without sherpas. I'm doing it with oxygen. I'm doing it without oxygen, you know. And this is why I also think that, yeah, it is actually beneficial when couples can travel together you know um, yeah you know because they they have the ability to read each other and just kind of seems like look you're being a dumbass it's like <laughs> all right well but the, and then the next day it's like no look you're being a dumbass and then kind of check each other to a, a certain extent but if people stop starting an agreement silly i'm always a dumbass that's all i know yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. well grant if the cap fits <laughs> Do you know, I, I very seldom meet um, uh, an overlander who's been on the road for quite a while or an experienced ADV rider who is arrogant. I find that the risks that they've taken that didn't work out soon knock the sharp edges off, but rarely the enthusiasm. 
Yes. Mm, yeah. yeah, it does happen. Mileage makes a difference for sure. Uh, mm. Too often people leave their home country thinking that their home country is the best place in the world and everything else in the world should be like that. And if it's not, it's obviously shit. So then they get pissed off and they don't. It takes them a while to realize that it's their country. They have their way of doing it. And therefore, it's correct for them. And, and you have to adapt to their way of doing things. They're not going to change things for you. Forget it. It's their country. And as far as they're concerned, their way of doing it's better than yours. So learning to adapt and getting used to that way of thinking and understanding that there are other ways of doing things and it's all fine takes a while. You do learn. So much good information there, I think. That was really good. Um, if, I guess we'll move ahead to plugs now since we've, uh, we've been on quite a while now. And uh, Carl, did, did you get a plug or did you get the notice about a plug? I can't remember if we told you about that. Uh, I don't recall seeing anything about plugs. Okay, but my apologies. Um, we have a, we just do a plug, so it's it's your chance to you know to get some sort of advertisement or whatever on here. You know, just you can plug something. So you can think about that. I'll put you in at the last. You can make something up. Hey, Carl, plug your magazine. Too easy. Too <laughs> it's easy. An obvious one. <laughs> That's Carl, by the Carl, way. Plug, 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 the, plug the rally. Plug your rally. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, that's cool. You know what? Let's uh, let's hear some of the other guys go through their plugs first. So I'll okay. have an idea. Of, yep. I'll, of, I'll leave of, you to the end. We'll start off with Sam. Cool. What do you have to plug, Sam? <laughs> actually, I've got one <laughs> for a change. No, seriously. I, I actually mine's a thank you, um, rather than a plug for a, a specific thing that I'm up to. Um, I want to thank the listeners of Adventure Rider Radio for a couple of things. I know that listeners have been very much involved with the level of sales of my second book, Under Asian Skies, over Christmas. I've talked about it quite a bit, but um, it's actually been really <laughs> special, and I've been humbled by this, because for the first time ever, sales of Into Africa have been knocked into second place, and they've been done that by Under Asian Skies, um, and I'm just blown away by that. Um, I also want to thank everybody for the Christmas messages that I've had. It's just been absolutely phenomenal. The sheer joy and camaraderie that's been buzzing around this Christmas has just been fantastic. What a super time of year. Really good atmosphere all round. So thank you, everybody. Really very much appreciated. And I'd just like to wish everybody a brilliant 2017. I think it can be a superb year for the, the greater percentage of us. And I just hope that everybody's adventures challenge them inform them and get their adrenaline buzzing and i hope they make everybody smile too and look younger Cheers. at the end of the year <laughs> wouldn't that be nice <laughs> very well said sam <laughs> yes it's true we are uh, we've already started 17 haven't we it's it's really i, I just yes. i'm always constantly amazed at how fast the, these things go by time in general Shirley, what do you have for us today Oh, um, I want to plug the Australian version of the Adventure Travel Film Festival, which is next month. So if people don't get their tickets soon, they'll miss out on the opportunity. So it really is just for your Aussie listeners. But it's a, it's always a good festival and there's some brilliant films being shown this year and some interesting speakers. Um, they're going to show Austin Vince's film Mondo Enduro, which is kind of hilarious when you look at some completely incompetent men on crap motorcycles <laughs> trying to do something quite extraordinary and some of them actually achieve it. So it's always good fun, adventuretravelfilmfestival.com and the tickets are dirt cheap. I think it's about... $150 for the whole weekend, three days of films and uh, and speakers, and it's at Bright, 
which is God's own country, um, with some great riding to get into the town, some butte accommodation and uh, the brewery and lots of food, good food and wine. So Adventure Travel Film Festival. When is it? Uh, it's the 10th, 11th and 12th of February. So um, next time we speak, we'll probably be in Bright rather than in, uh, in Melbourne. So how many films do you have showing there? Oh, I think there's about 12 or 14 and all the films are being screened twice. So if there's something on up against the films that you want to see, you'll get the chance to, to catch it a second time. And there's films about bikes, there's films about cars, there's films about paddle boards, um, a lady who walked with a donkey, um, a group of men who, and uh, yeah, I think all men who bought a, an English double-decker bus and drove it around the world singing for their supper and, uh, and made a film of it. They sang for the Shah of Iran. Um, and two of the, they're the pillocks, and two of the pillocks are actually going to come to, uh, will be in Bright to introduce the film, so you'll get to sit down in the... So they call themselves pillocks. Yes, that's, I'm not saying that that's what they are, that's what they've nicknamed themselves. Good point, Brian. Um, you, you really have to go far nowadays to get some recognition, don't you? I mean, they had to go to a double-decker bus, they had to drive around the world <laughs> and sing for the supper. What is next? <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid to find out. <laughs> what do I need to do to stand out in this world? Well, get yourself a double-decker bus, no, come to Australia in it and see how you go. It's been done. i got to get something else. Yeah, that's Brian, true. do you have something separate? Uh, well, look, yeah, just a general plug, really, Jim. Um, I'm writing for a magazine called Australian Road Rider Magazine at the moment, and uh, – People say magazine sales are on the wane, um, but I've got to say, I love picking up a magazine and flicking through it and finding out what's latest and greatest and and um, so people's perspective on it and being able to flick through pages rather than just sit on a computer screen. So I've got a general plug for ma- magazines overall, wherever you are in the world, and if you're in Australia, pick up a copy of Australian Road Rider magazine and keep it going because it's a pretty good mag, actually. Totally very nicely said, Brian. It is something very to, nicely said. to hold it in your hand, and I would encourage everybody with that plug go out there and buy a magazine because the last thing we want to do is just be lazy about it, not bother picking one up, and then find they disappear over the years. We want to keep magazines around, so yeah. And that goes well, of course, for books. We do have a number of authors. As a matter of fact, isn't everybody an author here except for Carl? Are you an author? Well, I mean, I do publish, but I haven't uh, written any books. I've done a film, uh, but no books. So have you been, has your film been at the Adventure Travel Film Festival, Carl? No, you know what? Um, actually, when I first uh, started to push it here in the U.S., I sent it over uh, you know, to Austin. Uh, and uh, he saw it, and uh, I think it was a little bit late. I think he said he would show it in, in, in Europe, but I never heard of anything about it. I did show it at the Himalayan Film Festival in the Netherlands, and I'm going to actually try to try to talk and see if I can get it in New York City, too. Uh, because I have a, a, sh- a shorter cut version of it, uh, which I think would be good for some folks to see and learn about a part of the world that a lot of people f- fundamentally just don't know much about. I didn't see that yet, Carl, either. We were supposed to get a link. Oh, yeah, that's right. You yeah, know what I've... Uh, yeah, 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 I yeah. I, I certainly will. I think that um, the the film, which is called The Return, uh, Writing Western China, is actually probably one of my most concise statements about why adventure is important. Uh, and what it means to the individual and the world around us. I really enjoyed it, Carl. 
Um, I, I really enjoyed it and I, I would thoroughly recommend it to anybody in part because of when you were doing it and how you did it but your thought processes as you go along um, for a lot of people they're going to learn from this but they're also going to see a fantastic part of the world I had no interest in visiting China until I saw um, your movie oh really well that's good so it's done its job <laughs> yep absolutely yeah. Yeah, it's a good film I quite enjoyed it myself it's good Graham what do you have for us um, I really don't have anything. <laughs> uh, Carl didn't know he had to do a plug. I did, but I still haven't got any snow. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, your, your brain's frozen in all that snow over there, Graham. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I really haven't got anything to plug, sorry. <laughs> Okay, so Graham with no plug, I'm just going to say, I mean, if you haven't got his books, you can get his books, you can get the, uh, are you still doing the, the pannier set? I mean, did you lose all those over Christmas? Uh, there's a, there are really literally a few left. Um, okay, I've got a little plug. It's quite funny. I distribute, you just jogged my memory, I distribute uh, Ted Simon's In Camera's coffee table book for him. I hold them all in the UK. And uh, I got an email today from someone in Spain via Amazon saying, I try to order it off of Amazon and they won't post it to Spain. Can you help? And I was like, okay, just go to my website and click on Boxsite Europe. And that will be about the right price. And I'll know it's you and I'll send you Ted Simon's book. And then I got an email back saying, oh, I just looked at your website. I want your box set as well. So <laughs> nice. Oh, nice like work, it. Graham. Nice uh, work. Hang, hang on a minute, Graham. Graham, it's not you. It's your mum. Yes. <laughs> I was just going to mention that too. If anyone didn't hear the holiday special that we put out there, you got to listen to that because Graham's mum is on there. <laughs> And she's a sweetheart. <laughs> she certainly is. And she's the shipping department. And a very hard worker. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Grant, what do you have for us? Well, we've got some exciting news coming up. Everybody's heard about the Achievable Dream, our How to Ride Around the World DVD set that we've been selling for a few years now. It's sold very well. We've done, we're very happy with it. Uh, but we keep getting people asking us, well, is there a download version? And the answer has always been no. Well, today the answer is yes. We have download is in progress. By the time this is aired, we should have all episodes of the Achievable Dream DVD set available to buy online on Vimeo. And we'll have it on our store within a couple of weeks as well. So that's coming very soon. So you just go on there, pay for it, and download it, and you can watch it. It's great. Ah, technology. Download it. Yep. Download it. You can rent it. You can download it and keep it. Um, our, our Achievable Dream DVD set has always been not copy protected because we're expecting people to copy it to their laptops and take it with them, especially the tire changing one. I've had lots of stories of people saying, yeah, I was stuck at the side of the road and I had a flat tire and pull out the laptop and start watching how to change the tire and the way they go. So we oh continue with that. Oh, my God. Now I've oh, yeah. heard everything. Yeah. <laughs> There's been there. I could tell you a few really funny stories about that, but I won't go into it now. Um, but yes, all that stuff will be available very shortly. So check it out. Come and check the website. Also, I should mention um, the new Horizons Unlimited is very much in progress. And if anybody's thinking about uh, writing, doing a blog about their trip, come and check out our new blogging system, which is at new.horizonsunlimited.com. And you'll see that you can do all kinds of really cool stuff. And there's lots more stuff coming. Um, GPS stuff and border crossings and information and posting all your photos. Everything goes in there very nicely and very easily. And, of course, being on Horizons Unlimited, 
you're going to get a big rack of traffic because uh, your own website in the middle of nowhere is kind of hard to find. But, of course, we get found by everybody, and lots of people come to the website looking for inspiration and traveler stories. So that's the place to be seen quite easily, and it's, of course, always, as always, free. Now, Grant, I asked you before about that, about uh, was it going to be a big change? You, will you notice a change in the website, or is it all back-end stuff? Uh, no, it's all back-end stuff to start, and the, the new .horizonsunlimited.com, if you go there, it looks similar to the old site, but it's not much different, but it's similar. Uh, but it's completely new back-end, and as soon as we've got the back-end completely done, then we'll be redoing the front end as well. But first, we want to get the back end working properly. But it's going to be some pretty major changes. And with the new technology we've got, the things that we'll be able to do will blow your mind. We were just going through some stuff this morning. Um, destinations. You can put in a cool place that you found. You love it. Click it on a map. Zoom right in. You can look at the building, take the picture, post it, put in your information, your experiences about that place, all kinds of stuff very, very easily. And then you can also, of course, as a user come along and say, oh, I want to go there, click a little button, bookmark it, go to your bookmarks list in, in your section on, your, on the website, and say, send me the GPX file for all these points. Download it, and away you go. You've got your route set up. So that's all coming very shortly. Okay, Carl, what do you have for us? All right, well, I guess I'll try and keep it short and sweet, but it's basically ordinary people do extraordinary things all the time. It's just a decision that you make, and anyone can do it. If you really want to see more people that live a life uh, of example with an open heart who want to explore a big world, um, visit AdventureMotorcycle.com or subscribe to ADV Moto Magazine because that's what it's all about. Okay. And you can subscribe for both the paper version and online version, correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, if you subscribe for print, you also get digital. So you get access to over 30 back issues, um, two which you can download immediately, plenty of reading while you wait for your first issue to arrive. Uh, and I believe in September and October, we will be hitting our 100th issue. Ooh, so we're trying nice. to line up on, on some things there. Yeah, um, A lot of people don't know it, but as far as I know, in terms of just adventure-specific category, ADV Moto, is the oldest publication around. And we are actually on international newsstands. Um, so that is that is a nice little feather in our hat, hat that we have developed over the past six years, largely thanks to the work of the crew here, but also just everybody out there who's writing and they want to be exposed to different things uh, and believe that what they want to do is possible. Do you post to places like Australia, Carl? Uh, no, but we're on newsstands in Australia. We are, I, I think oh, it's something... Wow. Yeah, we're on, I think, about 70 newsstand locations. It's very hard for us to get actual address listings. Um, but if you want to see where we are in newsstands, uh, you can go to our website. We have a newsstand or shop finder. I think it's over about, about 3,000 locations in the U.S. and Canada. And uh, I think it's about 180 locations between uh, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, um, Brazil, and Puerto Rico. And if you can't, surely you can always get it on your iPad. Fantastic. Excellent. Indeed. Yeah, uh, yeah that's right. Now. And there's apps, too. Uh, we have an app, um, which is run through a third-party digital newsstand provider kind of thing like that. So, yeah, there's all kinds of ways to get ADV Moto uh, online, subscribe, download PDFs, take them with you, do whatever you want. You know, I mean, that's, that's the part about media is, is the responsibility to get the content and material to people in whatever way they want to read it. 
And so, yeah, we are available all over the place. The only thing we don't do is carry your pigeon. Um, <laughs> Which is why Australia doesn't get the magazine. Yeah, I know, right? I know, right? Damn those pigeons. Yeah, I know, right? Going extinct and everything. The gall. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, so everyone, please kind of come check us out. You know, uh, this is, this is a, a publication that is put together, like I said, just by a lot of very average, normal, everyday people. We work harder, um, I mean, to me, I would say than anybody to make sure that, you know, anyone that's going out doing something great with their life and they want to write something about it, you know, and especially if they take good pictures or something like that, if it's genuine and it's sincere um, and, it's, and, it, and, and it's changed you and it's changed the way that you perceive the world, we'll find a way to help you get the message out there, you know, about what you've done and, uh, and, and why you think it's important. Well, Very I guess cool. that about wraps things up. Carl, I, I want to thank you for coming on as a guest and putting up with us for, what, almost two hours now? No, that's cool. Thanks for having me on again. You know, I always enjoy uh, the talk and banter and everything. And, of course, the usual suspects that you've got here are some of the best in the world. So congrats on putting together a great radio show, too, as well. It's a lot of work, and I think a lot of people you know, may not understand um, how hard it is, but uh, but... But it, it is very likely that of all the people that are online right now, uh, one of the people that should get the most applause is the one that, that doesn't want to get it, and that would be you, Jim. Yep. Well, thank you, you very much. much. Too, right. I guess no. with that, we're going to do our, our usual after-show party, which I, I sort of think since Carl's the guest, shouldn't we just go to his place? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know I'm being forward, Carl, but is that okay? I mean, can we come over? Yeah, sure. You guys come on out. <laughs> My parents are upstairs. The basement's all ours, kids. All right. <laughs> <laughs> another trip on the Barbie. We're on our uh, way. I have to say, it's a very cool basement. I have slept in that basement, and I have seen Carl's setup down there. It's a bit like the set, this, um, the the flight deck of Star Trek. Excellent. <laughs> Sounds even better. It's a it's a it's a futon with a couch and a TV and a computer. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Okay. No worries. Cheers. Good talking Cheers, to you all. Cheers, everyone. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Well, that wraps up another ARR Raw for January 2017. And remember, we have uh, the regular Adventure Rider Radio. You can visit www.adventureriderradio.com and you can get all these shows and, of course, all our other shows for free. Just listen to them. If you like what we're doing, you want to help things out, you can click on the donut button. You can click on the, not the donut button, but the donate button on the website. And, uh, well, send us whatever. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back. At you. And, of course, any $50 donation or more is going to get you mentioned at a raw show, this one right here. Thanks very much for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Jim Martin, and this has been ARR Raw.